So today is Pentecost Sunday, which if you do not remember, the word means 50th. It's 50 days after Passover. And remember that Jesus has ascended. He sits at the right hand of God and he pours forth the gift which he promised. The Holy Spirit is a gift. We believe in this Holy Spirit, as you've heard over the last few weeks in the Creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. He spoke by the prophets. This is the Holy Spirit. Jesus has sent him. He's poured them out for us. If you would, pray with me. Father, we come into your presence to hear the word spoken, the living word, our Savior. And Lord, we, knew, we know that that word does no good in us unless it's united and quickened in us by the Spirit. We need life that only comes from your good hand when word and Spirit work together within us, producing ears to hear, feet that are quick to obey. And so we pray that you would do that in us today, that you would help us to know you, our Lord, our Savior, and our Maker, in a new way. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We don't often focus on the Holy Spirit uh, in this church, and, and perhaps we should as we come exegetically across the text. We, we speak about his work, but today we're specifically going to focus on the work of the Holy Spirit, and w one of the traps that we run into is thinking of the Spirit not as a person, and particularly thinking of the Spirit as a gift that we can control. Jesus tells us to ask for the Holy Spirit. He says, everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, to him who knocks it shall be opened. And if you ask one of your fathers for a fish, he won't give him a snake. If you ask for an egg, he won't give him a scorpion. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus is telling us to ask for the Holy Spirit, and in his goodness, the Father will give the Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, that's what we celebrate, that God answered. That doesn't mean that we stop asking. We'll, we'll get to that. But before we move on... I, just, just a, a couple comments before we come to the text in, in Acts. One of those, if you think back to the Old Testament, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he said that striving after the wind, trying to shepherd the wind is vanity. Remember that the word spirit is wind. When we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and we believe that we can control him, then we've got it all backwards. We do not understand then the work of the Spirit or the fruit that he produces in his life. He is the one instead that controls us. So as we go through the history of the day of Pentecost in the early church and looking backwards into the Old Testament, we're going to see that there is something specific. I'm going to focus on, on one thread, one example that filters through about how the Spirit controls us. Remember that John says when Nicodemus comes to ask him of the Spirit, that he's a wind that blows this way and that way. He blows to and fro. You can't control him. In fact, it's difficult to keep up. He who is born of the Spirit is like this. It's like the wind. You can't see. But, but the wind blows with force and brings life. So how do we participate? How do we have our share with the Holy Spirit? What does he do in us? And I can't give a, a full, uh, the, the fullness of what the Spirit does. So as I mentioned, I'm, I'm going to focus on how one aspect of the Spirit's work is weaved into our midst today and, and what we ought to expect as, as the church of the living God. So if you would turn with me then to the book of Acts. A text that we should know well. The day of Pentecost had come. So 50 days after the Passover, Jesus has died. He's been raised up on Easter Sunday. He's ascended in the first chapter of the book of Acts. He sits at the right hand of God, and now he's doing exactly as he promised. He pours forth the very person of God, whom he says... He said, remember in John 16, it is to your advantage that I leave. 
It's better that I go and ascend to the right hand of the Father because I will send you the helper, the comforter, who comes alongside the, the advocate for you. And he will convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. And his work will be accomplished. And here on the day of Pentecost is exactly what we see. The apostles are gathered together in one place and the heavens open up and a noise comes like a violent, moving, rushing wind and it fills the whole house and it filled, it filled the whole house where they were sitting and there appeared over them tongues of fire, distributing themselves, dividing themselves and resting on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak to one another in tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So the Spirit, the fire cloud of, of Israel comes and in tongues of fire from heaven, he distributes himself on the apostles and we see then that work begun. They speak and there's understanding. There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven, and when the sound occurred, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. They were afraid because they were hearing them speak, each one in his own language, and they were amazed and marveled. And they said, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabs, we hear them in our own tongue, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. So the Spirit comes, the apostles speak. They speak with the power and the authority of the Spirit. And some resist the work of the Spirit. The words are heard, so enlightenment is given. Some resist and some accept at the end of Peter's sermon beginning in verse 14. This day of Pentecost is one that you could use it to teach the entirety of scriptures. If you look back, you'll see that the imagery that's brought in, it connects to almost every major event that exists in the Old Testament. It brings us forward in the plan of God. This is an inflection point in God's plan in which he gives the, the spirit, the church is established, the foundation is begun, and at the end of it, there's 3,000 new believers that have been added to the church, filled with that same spirit and their lives are transformed, as we'll see at the end. So I want to, I want to take two, two themes, and we'll take those two themes and, and looking at opposite sides of this text. The first one of them, as I wrote in the, the, the reminder email yesterday to think about, comes from Genesis 11. Hyde read it for us this morning, and it's the story of the Tower of Babel. So if you would, flip your finger back to Genesis 11. Hold your finger there in Acts 2 and flip back to Genesis 11. And this is a common observation among Christians that when the Spirit comes and the gift is poured out, it's peculiar that he's poured out in the picture of tongues of fire. And those tongues work themselves out in speech that's understood, ears that are opened. And it's inversion. It's an inversion of the story of the Tower of Babel. And I just want to make two observations from that story that are, are important to our understanding today. So in Genesis 11, the whole, the whole earth is using the same lip, the same words. They're worshiping the same false gods themselves, as we'll see in a minute. And they journeyed east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there, and they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city, a tower, whose head will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And Yahweh came down. So what's going on here? is the people of the earth have gathered together in opposition to God. And the opposition is driven by fear. You remember the events that preceded this in Genesis? God just wiped out the face of the earth. He flooded it. He says that the intent of man's heart is wicked continually, and my spirit will not strive with him forever. 
And so all but Noah and his passengers perished in the flood. And now in Genesis 11, nations have been born. We're looking at a few, uh, few generations later. Nations exist on the earth, and they're looking back in history. And uh, with the young people, we just did this exercise. We looked at the, the timeline of names, and, and Noah's son Shem would still be alive here. So the, this, the history of the flood is not wiped out in their memory. And so their goal is to protect themselves from God's judgment. They're afraid. They're afraid of the judgment of God, and rightly so. If you look back and you say, there was this, this point in time in which God brought the, the, the waves of the sea, opened the heavens, and, and the, the waters flooded over the earth, over the very top of the, the highest mountain on the earth, and millions to billions of people perished because of the judgment of the Lord. Would you not be afraid? And so they make it their goal then to make a name for themselves, to build a city and a tower whose head reaches up into heaven so that they would not be scattered. And then God comes down. So the two observations I want to make here are, well, maybe three. Well, one is the, the judgment of God on the Tower of Babel is the dispersion of tongues. And when we come to the story of Pentecost, God inverts that. He makes one new tongue. Everybody hears and understands. God speaks, and His Word is brought to life by the work of the Spirit. But in thinking about those people in the plain of Shinar building the city, the reason they're building the city is fear. But their fear is unjustified because they are... They, they failed to listen to the promise of God. Remember, he promised, I will not do this again. If they were going to be afraid, they should look for a different kind of judgment. Maybe they should have built themselves a, a fire protection uh, zone. But instead, they're building, they're building this tower to reach up into the heaven. And the, the, the next observation I want to make is they're doing it backwards. So their goal is to reach up into the heaven. That's how they're going to protect themselves. They're afraid of God's judgment, and instead of submitting to it, instead of trusting in the promise of the Lord and the covenant that he made with Noah, instead they're building this tower whose head will reach up into the heavens. They're trying to ascend into God's house. I, I think this is important. When you think about the story of Pentecost, where did the Holy Spirit come from? He came down from heaven. There's a very slight difference just in the mindset, in our mindset, as we think about what God is doing. If, our, if we're driven by fear of God's judgment, and so we're, we're driven with an escapist mentality in which we want to escape the impending judgment of God, there's, there's something a little bit right about that, but the directionality is wrong because God's promise is that He will come and dwell with His people. So there is no escape apart from God. Instead, the expectation is that God will come to dwell with us. And that, that means there must be a change of mindset. If, if, if there's an escape from judgment, it can only be with God coming down into and, and dwelling with man. All right, turn back to the book of Acts. So the heavens open and the Spirit comes. He's poured forth from the heavens. And he fills the apostles and they speak with tongues. One more simple observation here is, it shouldn't be new, but as I, I, read, I read a few really old commentaries, so four or five hundred years old, as I was thinking about the work of the Spirit. And one thing that struck me is the Spirit isn't just the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. So we believe that God, God's Spirit emanates forth from God the Father and God the Son. You can find that in John 15 and John 16. But that Spirit is specifically called, and, and almost always called, the Holy Spirit. And that, that's important. Jesus is holy. God the Father is holy. They are called holy ones at specific times, but almost always 
the Spirit is called the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Why is God pouring forth the Holy Spirit or the, the breath or the wind from God? And I think that this has to do with, with what holiness is. Holiness is, is God's characteristic. It's hard to put your finger on. I've talked about this before. Holiness is who God is. You can't sum up his characteristics and say this one is holy and this one is holy. Altogether, God is holy. Everything that he is, and yet he calls us, he says, you must be holy as I am holy. He calls us into his holiness. And if you read through the Old Testament, you'll find that holiness is both the, the, the characteristic of the personhood of God, but it's also it, it's whatever is in, within his vicinity. So whenever you enter his house, you enter a holy zone, and you are marked out as holy. And when you're marked out as holy, there is danger. Because you are in proximity to God, God is going to reach out, and in holiness, he'll destroy any uncleanness that's in his presence. So we can draw near to God today, this morning. We can draw near, and we are called sanctified. We're called holy, made holy in the presence of God by the work of the Spirit. But there's danger in that action of drawing near because, precisely because God is holy. Being brought into the holy presence of God does not save us. We must be brought in having been made clean. So thinking about this work accomplished at Pentecost, first Christ dies. He's raised up and he ascends to the right hand of God. If the gift of the Spirit had poured forth before, the result is destruction. When God's people and His holiness moved into the land of Canaan, they were marked out as holy, and the result for them was utter annihilation. Only by first being made clean can this gift of the Holy Spirit do, do His job. His, Jesus' blood is poured out. We're called clean, and the Holy Spirit then marks us out. The borders of the house are marked by the Spirit. When the, when the people hear and they're afraid, those who mock call out and they say, you apostles, you're full, of, you're full of wine. Of course, it's ridiculous to think that this is the effect of wine, but nonetheless, that's how mocking works. You scoff, and in, in your scoffing, your mind is twisted. And so Peter, he teaches under the power and the authority invested him by the Spirit, and he brings together... Uh, a passage from the book of Joel, and then three psalms, Psalm 16, Psalm 132, and Psalm 110. And the work of the Spirit is to testify of Christ. And so this entire sermon is aimed at showing that this very pouring forth of the Spirit shows who Christ is. It shows that he's been raised up and that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And I want to draw your attention to then the last text that he uses, Psalm 110. He says in his conclusion that it couldn't have been David. Instead, Jesus, verse 33, has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, which he's poured forth this day, and you both see it and you hear it. It wasn't David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Who would turn with me to Psalm 110? Sorry, I'm going to make you flip a lot today. This is where I began thinking last week. We, we read Psalm 110 as an ascension psalm. And thinking about what Jesus does as he ascends to the right hand of the Father... Read with me then the, the first few verses in Psalm 110. The Psalm of David, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies, and your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. 
So Jesus is raised up. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And here in Psalm 110, the next thing that happens, God gives him the ruling scepter. And in verse 3, your people will volunteer freely. Or your translation might say, your people will give themselves as a free will offering in the day of your power or in the day of your army. So the, the picture we get here is not just that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father, but he's ascended unto a work, a job. So he sits down at the right hand of the Father, and God gives him the ruling scepter that we know from Psalm 2, and he's going to rise up and crush his enemies. But around him forms this army. And it's an army that's composed of uh, volunteers. So it's, it's a volunteer army. They've given themselves freely because they say, see Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. That's a, that's a really interesting picture. They give themselves up as free will offerings. We're not going to turn there, but if you remember, free will offerings are one of the three types of peace offerings. There's a thanksgiving offering, a votive offering, and a free will offering described for us in Leviticus chapter 7. These are placed upon the top of the, the, uh, the sin offering and the burnt offering as we come before God. And the free will offering, that, that word, it has the idea of uh, you're, you're compelled. Not compelled by slavery, but compelled by your heart. And so, as you think through the Bible, the, the root word for nedavah, nedav, nedav, you find it in, in Exodus 25 when they're gathering to collect uh, contributions for the temple. He says, bring forth, and whoever's heart was, was moved. It's that same root word, whoever's heart freely gave. They collected then all, all of that stuff, the skill, the labor, the gold, the silver, and brought it, and the, ta the tabernacle was constructed then out of the free will offerings of God's people. In fact, if you go look up both the, the, both the root for, for move or impel and the, the word that's used for offering itself, what you'll find is that it is peculiar to two circumstances in the Old Testament. The first one of those circumstances is the building of God's house. So apart, apart from the free will offering, the first of those circumstances is surrounding the building of God's house. So each time that a house is built in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the temple, the restored temple in, in Ezra and Nehemiah, each time there is a free will offering. The, the people's hearts are moved. In fact, if you would turn with me to Exodus 30, 35. Thirty-six, sorry. Just to emphasize this point. Exodus 36. Now, Bezalel and Aholiab and every skilled person in whom Yahweh had put skill and understanding to know how to perform all the work in the construction of the sanctuary shall perform in accordance with all that Yahweh has commanded. Then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every skillful person in whom Yahweh had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him to come to the work to perform it. And they received from Moses all the contributions which the sons of Israel had brought to perform the work in the construction of the sanctuary, and they still continued to bring him freewill offerings every morning." And all the skillful men who were performing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work which he was performing. And they said to Moses, the people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work which Yahweh commanded us to perform. And so Moses issued a command and a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp saying, let neither man nor woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more. This each time the house is built, you see the same picture. The people come, and on top of the tithes and the other offerings, they're moved, they're stirred up, specifically by the work of the Spirit to come and to bring unto the building of the house. 
And you see there, it's both in monetary offering, it's in skill. So Bezalel and Aholiab in whom the Spirit put skill and wisdom. So in, in, they were wise unto the task given, then they're brought forward unto this work. And the house of God is built each time. Now it's torn down by sin and there's a new house built, but each time God's people are stirred up and they come. The second place that this word is used, apart from the, the offerings that were prescribed then in Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, is in the context of war. So in Judges chapter 5, Deborah and Barak, remember, are going to fight. And they, they call an army, and the army responds. And as they're singing about the victory later, this same word is used. They freely came. They were liberal. They, they volunteered. And there's a blessing showered down from God. And so you have these two pictures side by side. You think about Psalm 110, it's that same image. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. He's establishing then his house. He's building a house, but around him forms this army that's composed of free will offerings. And this is, this is germane then to the Feast of Pentecost. All right, so what is Pentecost? The first Pentecost was, uh, occurred at, the, at Mount Sinai when the law was given. So 50 days after Passover, after the people exited the land, they come to Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up on the mountain, and God gives the gift of the law. And the people celebrate. We know, of course, that there's sin that breaks out in the camp, again, motivated by fear. Moses is gone. They say, well, where is Moses? And they're afraid. And they cast for themselves a golden calf, and they begin to feast around this calf. God sends Moses back down in his anger, and he says, I'm going to destroy this people. And Moses says, wait. Wait, because you've, you've promised. You've promised that you're going to bring them into the land. You've, you've promised. And so instead, Moses comes in anger as the mediator of God's anger. And he grinds up the covenant that they've broken. They drink it. And there is jealousy brought forth on the camp. And he calls for a volunteer army. And the Levites pick up their swords they're volunteers. They move freely, and they pick up their swords, and they turn around, and each one kills his brother. So that day, 3,000 fell in the nation of Israel. Because of their sin, because the sin broke out on this day, the day of Pentecost, when the law was given. That word wasn't united by spirit in them. They resisted. They sinned, and death was brought forth. I notice, uh, again, I don't want to belabor this, but on this new day of Pentecost, the day when the Spirit is poured forth, again, 3,000 men are pierced to the heart at the end of our text. There's a new volunteer army, conscripted, not as slaves, but having been moved in their heart and the Spirit dispensed upon them. And they speak, and they speak, as we know from Ephesians chapter 6, with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And that Word goes forth, and it doesn't return void. And so 3,000 that day, just like the 3,000 on Mount Sinai, fell. They're pierced to the heart, but this time they're added. They're resurrected, and the Spirit vivifies them. He brings life. Because the Word, combined with Spirit, brings life. Now, one more thing. The Feast of Pentecost, sorry, we're bringing all these threads together here in just a minute. The Feast of Pentecost was instituted as part of the law. So you can read about it in Leviticus 23. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 16. Uh, we're going we're to go to those texts briefly. So let's first turn to Leviticus 23. Verse 15, 
You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. And you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a new grain offering to Yahweh. And you shall bring in from your dwelling places two, two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two tenths of an ephah, and they shall be a fine flour baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. Along with the bread, you shall present seven one-year-old male lambs without defect, a bull of the herd, two rams. And there to be a burnt offering to Yahweh with their grain offerings, their libations, an offering by fire of soothing aroma to Yahweh. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering, two male lambs, one year old, for a sacrifice of peace offerings. The priest shall then wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering with two lambs before Yahweh. They are to be holy to Yahweh for the priest. And on this same day, you shall make a proclamation as well. You're to have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. It is a perpetual statute in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleaning of your harvest. You are to leave them for the needy and the alien. I am Yahweh, your God. So the feast is proclaimed. It's a harvest feast for the wheat. You bring the first fruits into God in recognition of his work that he will complete it. It's at the beginning, then, of the wheat harvest. But associated with this harvest, then, you reap only, only uh, the edges, not the corners of your field, so that the poor and the needy celebrate too. There is an outpouring of God's gift that funnels through, then, this, this offering unto the Lord. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 16, then. One more observation, then we'll be back in the New Testament. Deuteronomy 16, verse 9. The feasts are recounted a second time just as they are coming into the land in this, this second giving of the law. And there is a slight addition here. You shall count seven weeks for yourself, and you shall begin to count seven weeks from the time you began to put the sickle to the standing grain. Then you shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks. This is the same feast. It's Pentecost feast. The Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with a tribute of a free will offering. The word tribute there means liberal. With a liberal free will offering of your hand, which you shall give just as Yahweh your God blesses you. This is very odd. It's odd that in that this is the only time a free will offering is commanded. It's part of the festival cycle. And you might find it odd. How does one command a liberal free will offering? It's specifically associated with this feast, not Passover, not booths, but the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost. You are to bring with you a liberal, abundant offering, having been moved in your heart by God. How does that work? That's the essence of what we're after today. God calls us into his presence. He gives us commands but he calls us to be moved in the Spirit, and how does one do that? We heard, we heard Ezekiel was commanded to preach to a bunch of dried-up, whitewashed bones, a pile of bones. How does one do that? And in part, you can't. You can't, you can't move yourself, otherwise it's not a moving of the Spirit. The rushing wind that comes from above that plants the fire, that is God's work. We can't control God. And so then, what are we to do? One more text. I told you it was going to be a menagerie. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians, there is a... Uh, there's a problem in the new church in marking out who belongs to God's family, and that's, that's the essence of this epistle. And at the end, he comes to, he comes to the point. And we'll, we'll look at that then starting in verse 13. You were called to freedom, brothers. That should sound familiar. You were called to freedom. You were called to freedom, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. 
For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Herein lies the essence of our, our difficulty. God has brought this new people together as one new man, and he marks them out by the gift of the Holy Spirit. You can see this working through the book of Acts. There's, uh, there's, there's some lack of clarity about who's in and who's out, and God comes and his spirit comes upon Cornelius and his family and, and upon the Gentiles to the, to the point where they say, what? What can we do? God has given his spirit. How, how can we hold back? They're one new people under God. And here in Galatians, you see that coming to fruition, but there's still this problem. If we bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. There's a friction within the new, newly minted people of God that are marked by his spirit. And so his, his conclusion in this book is walk by the spirit. You're marked out. The holiness of God is marked on you by the Spirit. And there is a differentiation between the works done in the flesh and those done in the Spirit. And if you pay close attention to those lists, they're about dwelling with people. So the fruit of the Spirit is first love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all fruits that you find with one another. The fruit of the Spirit is not loving yourself. It's love. It's joy in the midst of one another. It's patience with one another. It's peace with one another. And all of those fruits together make up the work, the, the visible action of the Spirit who blows to and fro whom you can't see, but everyone who was born of the Spirit is like him. He, he comes in power and clothes with, with power and makes new, and this is the fruit that's visible. For the man that walks in righteousness, as we find in Psalm 1, he's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. That fruit is the fruit of the Spirit working up in his life. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires, and if we live by that Spirit, we will also walk by the Spirit, or some of your translations will say, keep in step with the Spirit. We'll struggle to keep up with the Spirit who's moving in our midst, but the word is stoicheo. It's the same one that's normally translated, or, or a derivative of the one that's translated elemental things, the elemental principles. And so he's setting in contrast the elemental principles under which you struggled when you were slaves, when you weren't children, is different now. We live under a new order. So there was one order in, in the old, and there's a new one that's come, and that order is set out by the Spirit. And this new order, given as the Spirit is poured out, it supersedes all that is old. It doesn't mean that there's no commands. If you look in the next, the next chapter, you bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ, but it opens up into something newer, bigger, and better. We walk in the order, we march on the order of the Spirit in the volunteer army of Christ, giving ourselves up. And there's danger here because when the Spirit is poured forth, He calls on us. He calls on us to, to speak and to act. Turn with me back to the, the book of Acts. I won't make you turn more than ten more times. So the Spirit comes like a mighty rushing wind and split tongues upon the heads of the apostles. 
Peter speaks, 3,000 are saved by the time you get to the end of the chapter. And what do they do? What is the result? They're baptized, they're added into the church, and they, verse 42, after having been pierced to the heart, after having repented and been baptized, they're added and they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together, and they held all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. They were praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So God's people, his army is being added to one by one, thousand by thousand because of the work of the Spirit. And the result is they meet together. They're devoted, continually devoted to the word given through the apostles' teaching to the togetherness, the fellowship, the, the, the share that they have in one another to the breaking of bread and prayer. And what happens is they begin to sell their stuff. Now it's dangerous, right? Now it's, it starts to hurt because when the Spirit moved among them in that early church, they sold their stuff. Flip over to Acts chapter 4. Look in verse 31. And when they had prayed, Peter and John had just been arrested and, and released, and now they're, they're praying. When they had prayed, the place where they gathered together was shaken because God was visiting. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was on them, for there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sale and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Uh, I, I bring you here because Luke wants us to see something. The tongues of fire that were distributed, the divided tongues of the fire, the one spirit comes and now there's many tongues of fire over each head of the apostles. It's distributed among them. That work of the Spirit goes forth, and 12 is multiplied and becomes 3,000. And 3,000 is added to, again, and you, you get another 5,000. And that work of unification in a group of people that is just being added, the Spirit works in their midst and moves their heart. They're stirred up. They're moved unto a free will offering. This is, this is beyond the money, and, and we're not preaching here for money today. I want you to see what the work of the Spirit is in, in fullness, that it works itself out here in the selling of land and houses, and they're laid at the apostles' feet, and it's distributed to each as they had need. It's that same word. And it's peculiar here in the book of Acts to only these two locations. The Spirit is given, divided, distributed among the heads of the apostles. It, it's added. The church grows. The foundation of God's house is built. The walls are being built up. Remember I told you that the work of the free will offering is two locations. The army and the building of the house. Here we see God's volunteer army being formed, the house being built, and it's being built here in a redistribution so that the work of the Spirit issues forth in common stuff. And it's distributed, so that Spirit goes forth. And so you see then in the beginning of what I read here, they were shaken and they were all filled with the Spirit. So not just the 12, but all of them. It's grown. And the work of the Spirit adds and multiplies, and the house is built unto the glory of the Lord. And the mission work of the Spirit in going out begins because the army is formed, and it's formed with a free will offering of the people. 
All right, so I said at the beginning we're going to discuss this work of the Spirit. How, how, what, what is our part in it? We read out of Luke's chapter 11 that when Jesus calls us to, and when we obey and pray for the Holy Spirit, he, God is a good Father. He answers. So when we pray for the Spirit, God gives. He gives abundantly. He gives freely as He's given in the work of Christ. And when we ask, it's dangerous because the Spirit is given. There is a way to resist the Spirit. Right? So throughout, throughout the New Testament, we can hold back from the Spirit. And there's, there's, there's two ways to do that. One is we can take and plug up our ears to the Word of God. So you can walk away from God's Word. When the Spirit calls upon us to do things that we don't want to do, mostly because we're afraid, remember the Tower of Babel, they were afraid. And the work of the Spirit, well, it should make us a little afraid because we can't control the Spirit. He controls us. And so we can walk away from the Word because the Spirit's work is to come and vivify, to enliven the Word so that it does not return void. And so if you take away the Word, the work of the Spirit will be made void. We can walk away from God's Word. We can plug up our ears when we hear it. We can deny it. The other, the other way that we can do that is we can close our hearts after having heard. So if you would turn, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. And chapter 6, verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, they have their share, their part in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. So they have been enlightened. The Spirit and the word have worked together. They see. They've tasted of the good word of God. They've been become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and then they've fallen away. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Or as he says in chapter 10, if you trample underfoot the blood of Christ and regard as unclean, that blood, the blood of the Son, after having been a partaker of the Spirit of grace, there no longer remains an offering for sin. So what is, what is our role? We call on God to do exactly what he promised to do. Send forth your spirit. It's what we celebrate today. We live in the age in which God has poured forth his spirit in abundance because Jesus sits at the right hand of God. But as he does that, his work is to come into us, to dwell in our midst as one people, producing the singular fruit of the spirit. It's not plural, it's not fruits, it's the fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. I think I missed one. But as, as that happens, he calls on us things that are unexpected. The Spirit moves beyond our imagination. And we can resist, we can grieve the Spirit, we can push back, but there's danger there. So one more passage, turn with me then to Philippians chapter 2. Writing on the backbone of the example of our Savior who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, we're called in verse 12, so then, because we watch who Jesus is, because he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself to the point of death, and because we see the end of it all, that he was lifted up and every knee bows down of those in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is doing this work, and I think the appropriate way to translate this verse is that God is doing the work to 
create in us the will and the work for his good pleasure. He is making in us volunteers. The Spirit moves us as he moved the tabernacle makers, the temple makers, as he moved the volunteer army of Deborah and Barak. He moves in us. He creates his desires within us to do his good pleasure. This is the work of God in our midst. We call on the Spirit to do this work in fear, fear of God, but we're not afraid of the end. We trust the God who has promised that He will dwell in our midst, and even though He is holy, and His holiness demands an awful fear, He says, you will be holy like I am holy because He's gifted the Spirit to transform us to change our desire and our heart so that we're willing to give, to build up the house of God, to build forth His kingdom on earth. And all that's done because Jesus showed forth the Father and He sent the Spirit to show forth Himself and we know God through Him. If you would pray with me. Father, we thank you that in your goodness you have not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. We thank you that you, you bring the fullness of your work to bear on us. You don't leave us alone with wooden stone commandments written outside of us but instead you and your grace and mercy have gifted forth the abundant spirit brought about by the work of Christ to do his work now in our midst. And Lord, we pray, pray that that work would be done. Help us not to resist you. When the word comes in and it's difficult to hear, let us bend the knee before you, unlike those at the Tower of Babel who lifted their fist against you and sought safety in another way. Lord, instead, Lord, we pray that you would help us to seek you first and to let everything else be added, added unto us. We pray these things in the name of our Father who made us, our Son, the Son who has redeemed and bought us, and the Spirit who is making us new. We pray these things in that name. Amen.